Galatians chapter 5, we are up to verse 16. Paul's continuing to exhort these Galatian believers that they are free from the law, but that freedom from the law does not mean that they are just free to live in the desires of their flesh or to put those desires first. So again, the question as he was going through here, talking about Christian liberty and what that looks like, the question kind of becomes, okay, if, if we're free from the law, but we're able to use our freedom as an operation or a base of operations just to fulfill our flesh, how do we stay on the right path in between those two things? How, how do I not go back to having to just keep the law and how do I know when I'm basically walking the flesh? How does God keep me in that right place then? And Paul will answer that very directly in verse 16. He says, I say then, built off all the other things we were just looking at, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul's answer is very clear. Here's how we do it. If we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will have fulfilled the law, which is what he's already talked about, and we will also not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do we walk in the Spirit? By living each day surrendered to his desires and not just the desires of our flesh. Uh, I think this is important because it's not a command for special or holy believers people like missionaries or pastors or something. Paul is writing this to the church. And Paul takes it for granted that they know the Holy Spirit in their own personal experience. He takes it for granted that they have the Holy Spirit. If they don't, they're not saved. Now, we might not always recognize the work of the Spirit in our lives as the Spirit, but the reality is if I'm born again, I have the Holy Spirit. And he works in my life and all of us know the feeling of the Spirit beginning to convict us about something like, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe I need to think about this a little bit more. Maybe I should have done something. Maybe, you know what, I need to repent. I need to talk to that person. I need to be in the Word. I need to be praying. Those are all workings of the Spirit in our lives. And what Paul's saying is, if I walk in the Spirit walk as it's the literal just normal term for walking something that is not super fast paced that is regular that's a typical part of every single one of our daily lives if i walk in the spirit you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh i will not fulfill the lust of my flesh this is how i stay safe this is how i know i'm not just living for myself if i walk in the spirit and it's not Sometimes we have like wrong conceptions of this, that walking in the spirit is, is a mystical kind of thing that happens at a crisis event in our lives. And when that happens, then we're kind of good from there. And sometimes, uh, I, maybe not always on purpose, but you hear people tell testimonies or they give uh, a testimony of the Lord's work in their life. And there's some dramatic thing that happens. And then there, it seems like their life was totally different. And so what we do is we're looking like, well, I need the secret thing to happen to me, too. And if that happens to me, then I'll be good and I won't have like this battle anymore. And the reality is, no, even people who have dramatic things happen then have to choose to walk in the spirit every day after that thing. 
That's just the thing that maybe brought it to the surface where they realized, no, I got to walk every single day with Jesus. We received the spirit in new birth. We all now face a life of daily submission to the God who made himself known to us, who gave us new life in him. We can, you know, not notice that very often. Uh, in, in all honesty, this week, this is one of those things that you're studying and, and God just keeps making it obvious to you all week long. I was like, okay, Lord, <laughs> time to remember there's my flesh and there's the spirit. This just keeps happening and I'm recognizing it even more in my own life. And it's important that Paul, I think, declares this truth. He says again, I say then, he's giving them a fact, a statement. This is, this is something that is true. This is how it works. And it's meant to exhort these believers and all believers through the centuries. Unfortunately, I think very often when we talk about Christianity, there's an emaciated version of Christianity that doesn't declare actually anything like this. Its conversation is usually more along the lines of, well, we're really, it's really kind of a foregone conclusion that most of us aren't going to do anything like walk in the Spirit, and we're just going to kind of be dominated by our flesh. Maybe not horribly, but essentially we're never maturing. We're carrying the same character flaws year after year. Salt and light is more conspicuous by absence than taste or sight. We're striving against sins that are sins that just make our reputation look bad. Selfish, lustful, petty. But then it's kind of like, but that's kind of like everybody, right? And a person who would just walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust in the flesh is almost exceptional or rare. That's not the way Paul is declaring this. He's declaring to all of these believers that God has set us free to walk in his spirit and not be dominated by our flesh. And that is there for everyone because of his work and because of the spirit in our lives. Now, does that mean Paul doesn't understand our struggle or what real life is like? Of course not. Look at verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Paul knows that, again, the context, the works of the law and keeping the law are opposite of faith, and in a similar manner, the works of the flesh and living in the flesh is the opposite of the spirit. These two are contrary. The desires of my flesh are going to be contrary to the, the, the desires of the spirit. And he understands that this conflict happens in every single one of us. Uh, it can seem when you read that verse, especially that last part of the sentence where he says, so that you do not do the things you wish. Again, that can kind of seem like he's describing a defeated Christian, like we just always are in the place where we're never doing the thing that we want to do. That's not what Paul says here. The context, again, the freedom that God gives us from the law doesn't look like freedom to live to ourselves. So his point is, I can't just always assume I can just be doing the things that I want. 
essentially, life is not a Disney movie. You can't just follow your heart. There's going to be times where you can't do the thing that you wish. That the Holy Spirit is telling you no. <laughs> that, that there's a contrary nature going against what our normal fleshly thing would desire. And we all know something. If you're a Christian, you know something of the battle between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit will always desire to do what is good. The Holy Spirit never has a bad desire. He never gives you a bad desire. The Holy Spirit will always be influencing us to obey and please God. And the flesh will always be desiring what it wants. So it's life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. Christ's life versus self-life. And everybody understands this battle as it's happening. We can, you could go to work all day, have a, have a day where you're just constantly doing your best to be a good witness, do a good job, even though maybe it bothers other people around you because you're a Christian, fighting against the pressures of the world, you're stressing all day to do what's right, and then you come home and you, you got a spouse there who's been also working all day, maybe taking care of kids or doing a whole bunch of craziness, and you've both been battling to keep your testimony and to do what the Lord wants you to do. And in, inside, you're both also kind of hoping, all right, when I get home, maybe somebody else will be nice to me. And then you get home, and that other person asks you to do something for them. And you were hoping they would do something for you, right? And how does our flesh respond? Always positively this is exactly what I was hoping to give more of myself here and now when I came home. Not just that I ever felt like that. You probably felt like that. And I've heard people feel like that. Right? Oh, that's difficult, right? Our flesh is there. We understand that. The giving of ourselves, the surrendering of what we want. And there's a lot of like pettier versions that happen all the time. You know, you're you're driving home and you pick up dinner for everybody and you hand out everybody's dinner and yours is the one that's missing. Do you immediately say, God, just bless that person at this place because they were busy and I think that they had a hard day. You're, no, your flesh is like, well, I'm going to eat yours because you don't deserve it, right? Your flesh immediately comes out because that is contrary to what the spirit would want in that arena. So the conflicting desires of spirit and flesh become the defining marker whether a person loves and serves themselves or loves and serves God. Paul's saying, did God set me free to be a Christian so that I can serve my flesh when those desires come out? Is that why he set me free from the law? Or did he set me free to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh, even though they are contrary to one another. God knows, I think this is important that, that Paul says this and that the Holy Spirit inspires it. God knows that we can't help that our flesh desires things on various levels. And God sees the desires of our flesh in us as a weakness, as a disease to be cleansed, but also different than the willingness of the spirit. He says, I know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so 
It means that resistance to our flesh doesn't invalidate submission to the Spirit. In fact, if anything, it confirms it. That me recognizing doesn't mean that I just have to walk around and always be super happy-go-lucky about things my flesh doesn't want, because I can't control that. But I can choose if I'm going to submit to the Spirit or not. I don't know if anybody ever happily changed diapers, but you do it because it's what you're supposed to do. And this is a way to love people. I don't need to sing songs about it, but I can choose not to give in to my flesh. It was nice when our kids got a little bit older, we could, do you want mommy or daddy to change your diaper? And then you, <laughs> I chose you, right? So the, the, the reality is we, we all have these things in us that we're called to resist. And some of us, some of these things are easier than others, but everybody has their portion here. And my life ends up being defined as a spiritual life or a carnal life. This is the difference between a whole lot of believers' lives. It's not that they're not going to heaven per se, but it is defining as to whether their life is a base of operations for the flesh or the spirit. And if they're saved, the spirit is working in them a contrary principle to the flesh. And Paul says, you want to stay on the right path? Well, this is how it happens. I, I remain obedient to the Lord because there's something in me that is calling me to in the Spirit. I don't feel like going to church at times. Then my flesh is lusting for comfort. But do I obey that lust or do I obey what I know the Holy Spirit tells me to do? I don't have to pray about whether I should gather with other believers. It's a command in the Bible. It's real clear. So how, how do I work through these things? The Holy Spirit is manifesting in me what he wants. Am I walking in the Spirit? Resistance shows a submission to him. I can't help that my flesh is still a part of me, but I can help the decision that I make. Now, sometimes, again, we, we can talk about these things, and some people are like, wow, what is this, just, just live a miserable life then? Is that how that works? Well, if to live like a Christian walking in the Spirit is a miserable existence to you, you're probably just not saved. <laughs> that's, that's Paul's point. Christ has set us free not to live for ourselves, to make my whole life a basis of operations for the fulfillment of my flesh, which is sinful and never gets enough, is so that I'm set free to walk in the Spirit and live according to a contrary principle. Yes, I can resist or grieve or quench the Spirit and His influence. But the wonderful thing is He never leaves. He never leaves. And for a Christian, He's, he's going to hang around for the rest of my life. And just like the disciples hanging around with Jesus, he's going to correct when we need correction. He's going to rebuke when we need to be rebuked. He's going to instruct when we need to be instructed. He's going to comfort when we need comfort. Living and walking in the Spirit is living and walking with a perfect person that always speaks up when they need to. If that's a miserable life, as I said, I'm probably not actually a Christian. 
I want God to be with me and to walk with me. And I know that if I'm led there, I'll be led in the right way. I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yes, there's a contrary principle so that I can't just assume I can just go live and do the things that I want. No, because the flesh is still in me. I need to recognize that there are desires that are not from God in my life still. And I have to resist those desires. So Paul adds, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul brings the law back into focus here. He knows that the Spirit of God leads us on a path between sinful desires of the flesh, verse 16, and now the yoke of bondage in the law, verse 18. The Spirit, again, uh, is God's means of obedience. In the law, he commanded obedience, but now he gives us his Holy Spirit who helps us live that obedience out. He gives us the means to do it. The Spirit is with us all the time. So if I'm led by the Spirit, I'm not under the law. I don't have to go back to the law. And the emergence of even fleshly desires shouldn't tempt us to go back to the law. Because the law, again, can never give me what I need to resist them and live out life in the Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit for that. The Holy Spirit is the means for me to not only keep the law, but to deny my flesh and to walk in him and to be led of him. Again, it means being under his leadership. Is Jesus Christ the one leading my life? Think of the disciples following Jesus. Did they always feel like doing what he had them do? Of course not. At some points, they were really frustrated. Why are we going through here? How about we burn up these Samaritans, right? Why don't... Why do, why do we got to have these people around? Can we please send them home? No, keep those little kids over there. Thomas, okay, let's just go and die with him. They, all, they weren't always super excited about what was going on. But they continued to be led of Jesus Christ. They chose that. And even when they weren't the happiest about it, they continued to allow him to lead them. Are we led of the Spirit of God? In our lives? Do we allow him to lead us? Am I going to remain connected to him and to his working? Now, if they weren't exactly sure what that would look like, Paul's going to spell it out here. And these are pretty famous passages, certainly the fruit of the Spirit a little bit more so, but Paul is contrasting these things on purpose. In case anyone was still confused and wondering what the flesh looks like, Paul begins to describe it. He gives a whole list. He says now, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. So these are the works of the flesh. These are the things that the flesh does. He says, which are adultery. We know what adultery is. Moving into sexual interaction with anybody outside of the marital covenant that you're in. Um, in the elementary school, they have them sing a little song through the Ten Commandments. And they have them like describing each one. They're littler kids. And as my kids were singing it, they were getting to the one on adultery. I was like, what are they going to say about this? And the line is, sleep where you belong. I thought, that's a great little way for kids to put that together there. Yeah, sleep where you belong. Adultery. Fornication, the Greek is porneia. It's basically all unlawful sex. Uh, as known in Leviticus 18, it spelled out what unlawful sex was. It was 
heterosexual, it was uh, homosexual, it was adultery, it was bestiality, it was looking upon the nakedness of another, it was incest, a whole list of things. It's not just sex before marriage, it is unlawful sex, sex outside of God's design, and anything that's included in that. Uh, sometimes there are people who say, the Bible never talks about homosexuality or fornication, pornea, the word is, all of those things. Jesus didn't have to sit down and spell out every single form of it. Paul here would use the same thing, all of those things. Uncleanness, also a word that relates to sexual things, and that basically included all impure thoughts, words, and actions. Some people try to make really dumb arguments as if their sexual interactions aren't wrong because maybe they didn't physically go to a certain place, but impure thoughts, words, and actions are considered unclean. Actually, the Bible says filthy jesting shouldn't even happen among believers. And Paul here says any act like that, any impure thought, word, and action is from the flesh. Lewdness goes furthest, and it's basically a description of shameless desire that goes even beyond the bounds of public decency. Uh, like there is impure sexuality that's, that's basically in, in unsafe America considered fine. But even unsafe people have their limits. Where they're like, okay, like this is, we have child abuse, we have some of these other things that go. And that's what this word basically covers, where, where this shameless desire, particularly sexually, gets taken beyond bounds to things that people should be ashamed of but are not. And those things are evident in our world, particularly with the Internet now. Idolatry, worshiping another god or worshiping the true god as something he is not, that is idolatry. That was part of why they weren't supposed to make a graven image. They made the golden calf and called it Jehovah. That is idolatry because Jehovah is not a golden calf. I cannot worship God as something he is not. And there are a lot of people out there who say they worship Jesus that do not worship Jesus as something that he is. And they are idolaters, even though they might call themselves Christians, because they worship God as something he is not. We do not define him. He defines himself to us. Idolatry, certainly to include worshiping other gods. Sorcery, the Greek word is pharmakia. It relates to magic, occult power, altered states, spirits, drug use was involved in much of uh, like demonic worship and the worship of gods and the prediction of things and the interactions with spirits. Uh, it's not always used exactly the same way, but certainly in our culture, there is a dark and satanic side to drug use those things are kind of tied together here in their culture. Hatred, animosity, enmity, wherever we see hatred, uh, the flesh is involved. Contentions, strife, and discord, those things come from the flesh. We like to justify our contentions, but most of the time Jesus would not be involved in them. Jealousies, desiring what others possess or enjoy. Outbursts of wrath, flaring temper is the idea. 
That is the flesh. Selfish ambitions. Though the idea is rivalry or uh, it, it, can, it can have the idea of, of essentially somebody just doing their own thing. Sometimes you get into uh, situations with people where you realize, oh, we're not really working together here. You're doing your own thing irrespective of anybody else. And that's an evidence of the flesh, selfish ambitions. Dissensions has the idea of standing apart, isolating. Heresies. The word has the idea of choosing or sectioning. Um, a, a heretic is somebody who takes a particular view of something and then draws lines and cuts others out. It's not that you can't hold a position, a theological position or something, but they become exclusive in those things. They section off. Envy. Envy cannot stand the prosperity or blessings of others, murders, violence, the degradation of human life. Drunkenness is a plague in their society, plague in our society. It's a plague all over the world. Uh, we really have no idea how many people die of drunkenness every year. They mark down certain things, but all these other health problems that people die from, it could be liver failure, but it's drunkenness. Drunk driving, Actions that people do could be a murder, but it's drunkenness that causes it to happen. Constant plague. Drunkenness comes from the flesh, period. And revelries, which were orgies or wild parties uh, tied to drunkenness, of course. All of these things, he says, are evidence of the flesh. And he says, and the like, which means this is not the end of the list. There's a whole bunch of other things he could say. Anything like those things, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul makes it clear. It's not that we can't have ever sinned in these ways, or even that there's still grievous sin in the church after we're saved. But Anyone, Paul says, that practices such things, these things are the practice of their life. He says, I've told you before, that person is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We have been saved from these things, not to these things. These works are the very opposite of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, these are clear works of the flesh in somebody's life. This is what the flesh desires. It always has. It always will. And people want to work, well, how do, you know, there's always a question, how do you know somebody's saved or not then? I think the reality is sometimes you can. If a person just sits down and tells me, I'm going to live this way, I know it's wrong, and I don't care, and I know I'm saved, my response to them is simply, I don't believe you can know you're saved. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but you can't tell me anything definitive because the Bible says that these works that are practiced, that type of person shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's a, it's a simple statement. It's like saying a pine tree is not a pear tree. Well, I don't know the specific, how could a pine, when does a pine tree turn into a pear tree? How does it, that's not, He's not getting into that. He's just saying this is what the principle is. 
the flesh works out these things in practice in your life. And that's an evidence that you don't have the Holy Spirit. This is what the flesh looks like. Now, to contrast that, if they weren't sure what the fruit of the Spirit looks like, Paul is going to tell them. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Now, notice Paul is contrasting the actions of the flesh. He says these are the works of the flesh and the actions of the Spirit, and he calls those fruit, works and fruit. One is done, the other is grown. Each has a different source of life and energy. Again, the whole context here is these two things are totally different. You've been set free to walk in the Spirit. You're not under the law but you're also not given over to the lust of the flesh. This is what the flesh looks like. This is what the spirit looks like. And the spirit is true and powerful in your life. Fruit, therefore, is an outcome of the life of God. That's what spiritual fruit is. Works are things we can accomplish in our own strength without the life of God. There are a lot of people doing things, even a lot doing things in the name of Christ, that might get results that are works, then when we stand in heaven one day, we're going to realize God doesn't own that because it was not the outcome of my life. That's what fruit is. Spiritual fruit is grown by abiding in Christ and being rooted in him. And God will never own anything as spiritual fruit that isn't the direct outcome grown and nourished from his own life in the Holy Spirit. That is the only thing that is spiritual fruit. And that type of fruit will always contain the seeds of more fruit, and it will produce after its kind. And Paul here is going to describe what that looks like. The Greek word for fruit, it's a collective singular. Um, it's, it's kind of how we would talk. The idea is if there's a bunch of fruit in the bowl, I would say there's fruit in that bowl, set, not, hey, look at those fruits. So, um, maybe we would say that, but generally you shouldn't. So it's a collective singular. Um, there's a lot of guesses as to why. I just think in context, it's the fruit comes from the Holy Spirit. That's his whole point. He's contrasting in the context, the flesh and the spirit here. The spirit is the singular source. It's all singularly connected to him, like one cluster of virtues, one cluster of grape on the vine. These things don't happen without him. And I think the idea for us is God doesn't dispense these various graces. We can read through this list, and sometimes it's kind of like, man, I need that thing. Like God is going to give me various graces in, like, ketchup packets or something like that, right? Like, here's a little kindness. I gave you five packets, and, and if I use that all in the morning, I got no more left. What do I do now type of a thing? That's not how it works. He doesn't, he doesn't give us just these things. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and then these things grow where they need to. That's the idea. So he gives us the Spirit, and these things are the fruit of the Spirit. So if I'm not walking with the Spirit, I don't still have little packets. I got none of it. <laughs> the only way I have any of it is if I'm walking with the Spirit, and he begins to grow these things in my life, and these are the things that grow. These are the things that come. I have to be connected to him. 
things such as, first he says, love, which is, of course, the chief characteristic of God, of our new life, of the Spirit's fulfillment of the law, Paul just said. God is the one who teaches us to love. We have none of this without him. He gives it to us. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We're supposed to be imitators of God. How do we do that? Well, I walk in love. That's what he did for us. And I walk as he did. And to do that, I keep his commandments. How do I walk in love? If you're not sure, keep his commandments. That's what the Bible says over and over again. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John the Apostle, who could probably tell us more about love than anybody else in the Bible, tells us in 2 John verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And the love that the Bible talks about sometimes is like, man, I wish I had it, but I just don't feel loving toward that person. <laughs> I don't feel like dying for that person on a cross. And particularly even sometimes towards God, I wish I had more love for God, but I can't, you know, I can't stir it up because we talk about love as this magical thing that happens that's totally outside of us. We fall in love or, you know, love just kind of sneaks up on us. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. Notice, love is a command, which means I'm responsible for it. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have any emotion. It just means that it's not all emotion. Because the Bible says the greatest commandment in the Bible is that I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means my body is involved in how I love. My mind is involved in how I love. My will is involved in how I love. And yes, my emotion is involved in how I love. And I just give God what I got. I'm not the most emotional dude in the world. And God doesn't, therefore, hold that against me. I love him with what I have. Your bodily strength, you have it. You use it while you have it. Your mind, God has given everybody different intellects, different opportunities to know him. There have been people in the world that have lived and died, never learned how to read, never had opportunity for education. It doesn't mean they can't love God then. They're supposed to love him with all their mind that they have. And we choose to do those things. And we would do the same thing in any other human relationship. Obviously, one of the saddest things is when a parent does not love their child correctly, but it is obvious in those scenarios, we generally hold that person responsible. <laughs> you could have chosen to love me correctly with your body, with your mind, with your emotion, and with your heart, and you chose not to. It's a choice. And God commands us to love him. And we can do that. And I think sometimes it becomes very easy to have an excuse. Should we have more emotion? I'll have more emotion when God deems me fit to have more emotion. Some of us are supposed to have more. Some of us are supposed to have less. My job is just to love them with what I have. God, this is what I got. 
This is the strength I have. This is the life I have. This is the mind I have. And I can choose to give these things back to you and to express love. Christ gave himself, all of himself for us. And we're supposed to walk in love with all that you are, all that you have. Or is our body only living for itself? Is our mind only exercised for itself? Is our emotion only exercised for ourselves, our own reputations, our own wants, or we care about others? Right? Where, what is the reality? The Holy Spirit is going to bear love in our lives. Love to God first and love to others second. With all that I am. Joy comes from God by his spirit. Joy is not shaken for circumstances because God is not shaken by circumstances. His ends are sure. And that's why the Bible can say rejoice always in the Lord. Because I know God's going to accomplish what he wants to do. Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, if I don't walk in the Spirit, I'm not going to have the joy I'm supposed to have as a Christian. There are a lot of Christians that are lacking joy, and one of the main reasons is you're trying to find joy in things the Holy Spirit could never take joy in. And you're not meant to find joy in things the Holy Spirit can't find joy in. I'm only meant to find joy in the Holy Spirit, in walking in Him. And when you see a believer do that, it's almost like their circumstances don't matter anymore. That's why Paul's in prison singing worship songs at midnight. And you're like, what is up with that, dude? Because he's not taking joy in just his flesh. He's taking joy in what the Spirit's telling him to take joy in. It's a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Peace is being in harmony with God and his will. Knowing not only that we're at peace with God, but understanding where, where we're supposed to be. Again, 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says, God is not the author of confusion, but peace as in all the churches of the saints. God's not working unrest in our lives. Confusion. Peace is his, is his goal. Long-suffering is a term of love and patience and kindness towards others who need it for Longer periods of time. <laughs> uh, we will all be, I was challenged with some long-suffering this week. You will be challenged with long-suffering. We have been blessed that people were long-suffering with us. We need to be the same towards others. The Bible says God is long-suffering towards sinners. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Man, more long-suffering than we could ever be. We look at other sinners and we're like, yeah, God, deal with them. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Kindness combines ideas, the word there, such as gentleness and easiness of disposition. Um, the word is kind of a mix of things. Henry Drummond uh, was a famous preacher. He gave a message called The Greatest Thing in the World on 1 Corinthians 13. He said this about kindness. I will pass through this world but once, and any good thing, therefore, I can do, or any kindness I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer it or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. 
Kindness is a disposition. Again, the Bible tells us that for the ages to come, Jesus is going to be displaying the kindness of God toward us. For eternity, he's not going to miss an opportunity. We too often miss our opportunities of kindness. We only pass through this way once. Let's not defer or neglect it. Goodness has the idea of being beneficial. Um, since God good, goodness is in himself, it's uncaused by creation. He didn't become good. He was good before anything else was there. He can just be continually good. His goodness isn't dependent. So most of the time in the Bible, God's goodness is clearly seen and known as his desire to be beneficial toward his creation. God desires to be beneficial toward us, to be good. That's why the psalmist very easily just says, you are good and you do good. That's who he is, and that's who he always is, which is a good thing for us to know, and he is working goodness in our lives. Faithfulness, the word carries the idea of faith uh, toward God, but also loyalty toward God faithfulness in life and what he's called us to do. Gentleness is mostly translated actually meekness in the Bible. It's authority under control. We're told of Jesus that he was meek or lowly. It's why it's a wonderful description of Christ. Uh, also, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth, the Bible tells us. He was also somebody who murdered somebody in cold blood with his bare hands. And that man, so it's not weakness, the type of rage that exists in somebody that would cause them to be a cold-blooded murderer. And when Moses lost his cool again, he lost his temper. He was not a weak individual, but he became meek, that power under control. That murderer that could have popped out was a changed person. There was still something in there, right? He lost his temper, but he didn't kill anybody the next time. But God had changed him. There was meekness there. And lastly is self-control, which I think is important. The Christian walking in the Spirit will not be out of control. There are so many crazy things out there in the church, so many crazy claims about what the Holy Spirit is doing or what the Holy Spirit does. Nobody who is in the Spirit will be out of control because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, temperance. Uh, James Elder Cumming wrote a book called Through the Eternal Spirit. I, I, talking about these spiritual gifts, he said this, it's difficult to give an account of the order, but two things are significant. The wonderful experiences of a surrendered life come at the beginning, and the mastery and subjugation of self within and without come last of all. Is not that the story of many a beautiful Christian life and is there not in a wonderful lesson for us if we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? In a wonderful way, these things do kind of work through our lives in a various order. Come to know Christ, his love, his joy, his peace, and he begins to conform us into his likeness. That kindness, that faithfulness, that gentleness, that self-control become things evident of a spirit-filled individual. And Paul says at the end of that list, and making it clear, there's no law against these. His point being, 
There's no law against these virtues because the law was designed for unlawful works of the flesh, not for virtues that are born out of the power and life of God. There's no, you don't need the law. Why do I need the law for love or goodness or faithfulness? That's, that's his whole point. Now, 24, he says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, how does this work? Well, we've been crucified with Christ by faith. Paul's already talked about that. Who I was died with Jesus Christ. He dealt with all of my sin and issues. But we also crucify our own flesh in obedience to God by the power of the Spirit. He has now given us the ability, as he said, to choose to reject the contrary nature of the flesh in my life. And the picture he gives of how I'm supposed to deal with that is to crucify it, to put it to death. Not allow it to hang around, but to deal with it. To crucify, I says, it's passions and desires. Passions being what resides in our flesh. Desires being their active expression. And this is something that's chosen daily. It's not a one and done experience. We all wish that it was. I wish there was a secret Bible verse I could read that I no longer had to fight with my flesh. That would be wonderful. It's not there. God is there. His grace is there. His promise that it will never leave me or forsake me. The promise of his spirit in my life. But I don't get to live in a different world than the one that we live in. It is very different from what the world tells us. This is, this is nowhere in the world the message to crucify the passions and desires of our flesh. The, the only message out there is, obey your thirst. <laughs> Hungry? Why wait? Right? I mean, we could just go down the list of every single ad. You got it? Flaunt it. Anything other is oppression. But for the believer, we realize that the flesh is what Jesus died for. And he didn't set me free to enjoy the things that he had to die for. He set me free to live life in his spirit. So in Luke 9, 23, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And our cross, what does it mean to take up the cross? Our cross is our death to self that we find in the path of loving obedience to God. That's what our cross is. It's not just necessarily something doesn't go my way, right? Because I drive up to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and I'm like, man, it's Sunday. Doesn't mean I'm carrying my cross now. Okay. My cross is the obedience that God calls me to, to follow his spirit. And then the contrary nature of the flesh coming in and choosing to put that to death. The metaphor of crucifixion is used on purpose. It was meant to be shocking. It was meant to be ruthless. It was meant to tell us that it's not pretty or enjoyable all the time to crucify our flesh. It will hurt us. It won't always feel fun or even spiritual, per se. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, described it like this. In human experience, that veil is made of living spiritual tissue. It is composed of the sentient 
quivering stuff of which our whole beings consist. And to touch it is to touch us where we feel pain. To tear it away is to injure us, to hurt us, and make us bleed. To say otherwise is to make the cross no cross, and death no death at all. It's never fun to die. To rip through the dear and tender stuff of which life is made can never be anything but deeply painful. Yet that is what the cross did to Jesus, and it is what the cross would do to every man to set him free. If you die to yourself, you know it is not easy. And I find this actually helpful because when people talk about spiritual things as something they're not, uh, I don't feel like it's helpful for us. But it is helpful to know I have to crucify my flesh. And I'm not always going to like that. And there are plenty of people out there in the world that will tell you the reason why you don't have to crucify your flesh or do anything that you wouldn't like like that. But what Paul says is, if I'm going to walk in the Spirit, I have to crucify the flesh and its passions and its desires. I will be required to do that on certain basis and on certain levels. It's not always going to be fun. But the emphasis should never be on how hard it is for us to put our wicked flesh to death so that we can be free to walk in the Spirit and know the blessings of spiritual fruit. Do you understand? That's what is happening here. I put my flesh to death so that I can find blessing. That's, that's why. It's, it's difficult. He's acknowledging that. There's a contrary principle. It's a battle. Oh, it's going to cost crucifixion, and crucifixion hurts when you surrender a part of your life. But what I'm surrendering is so that I can find freedom and blessing and life on the other side. You want to talk about the cross being hard, we can talk about how the cross was hard for Jesus, who was already free. He didn't need to be made free, and he chose the cross. People want to talk about life being unfair. No, it was unfair to Jesus, who was perfect. And he didn't need to have his sins paid for or justification with God or to have the hope of salvation. His cross is the emphasis. I don't take up his cross. He said, if anybody wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his as in mine, I don't carry Jesus's cross. I couldn't. No one could. No one could be that self-giving. No one else could be that selfless. No one else could be that loving. No one else could pay that price. No one else could do what he did. We take up the cross to follow him into freedom, into life, into glory. The cross frees us that he gives us. He knows we need it. Fenelon, in his book, The Complete Fenelon, and uh, if you feel like you need more to think about the cross in your life, just read A.W. Tozer or Francois Fenelon. They will help you. But he says this, the more we are afraid to bear crosses, the more we need them. Let us not therefore fall into hopeless discouragement when the hand of God lays crosses heavily upon us. We should be fully aware of the magnitude of our disease 
by seeing the severity of the remedies that our spiritual physician sees good to apply. Truly, we must be extremely diseased and God must be extremely merciful since despite our opposition, he reaches down to heal us. Surely we should find in our very crosses a supply of love and comfort and confidence. You see, the cross only kills self, the outward man, and it sets us free to follow him and to walk in the spirit. And even there at the place of the cross, God does not leave us alone. We don't have to say like Jesus did, why hast thou forsaken me? He'll help us. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. But it's a real part of following him. And he doesn't just say it because he's trying to give us something hard to do. He says it because it is the way that it is. It's not the way it should be. It is the way that it is. If I'm going to follow him, he took up the cross. I'm going to have to take up the cross. The cross that he took up dealt with all the sin in me. But I still find that flesh there, which means I need to put it to death. I need to follow his example. I need to surrender and accommodate myself to the cross he puts in front of me because I know it's good for me. And because it will work his life. And because we didn't end on the cross as Jesus didn't end at the cross. There was life beyond it. So Paul says, verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Paul says, if we live in the spirit, then let us walk in the spirit. That word walk is different than the one that was six in 16. Verse 16, the word walk was a regular word for walking. Here, the Greek word has the idea of walking in rank or in line. So the picture is it's walking in proper relation to other people. So if I'm living in the spirit, I should walk in the spirit, not only in proper relation to God, but to all those around me. And if I'm living in the flesh, I will not be in proper relationship to those around me. If I'm walking in the spirit, I will produce the fruit of the Spirit, and that will put me in proper relationship to the people around me. Not that they'll necessarily always be happy about it, but proper relationship in God's sight. Everybody wasn't happy about Jesus, but he was in the right place. Really, if we were like Jesus, the people who like Jesus would like us, and the people who wouldn't like Jesus also wouldn't like us. So I can know I'm walking in the Spirit and in proper relationship to God, when I have also a, a experience of walking in the Spirit with others. And there's a wonderful thing in the body of Christ that makes that evident. You see so many people working together to serve him, to follow him, to live life with him. It's not just a one-and-done thing. I've been in this church for 42 years, and I've got to walk in the Spirit with a whole lot of other folks. It's been wonderful and a blessing. And we should continue to walk in that idea. Now, the contrast of that is, that's why he says in 26, let us not become conceited. 
The idea is a conceited person has a false idea of themselves and their capabilities. We all recognize this individual, and we all also are that individual at times. We have the actual us and then the phenomenal us. And very often those things are different, and we have people relate to the phenomenal us instead of the actual us. And the conceited person uh, finds themselves greatly offended when somebody refers to the actual them instead of the phenomenal them. And we need to be careful that we're not conceited. It's an evidence of the flesh. Provoking one another has the idea of challenging one another, trying to get a rise out of others, and envying one another. This is despising. It's not just I wish jealously to have what they have. It's I despise the blessing of God in their life. They just can't even take it, so much so that it's what drove Cain to kill Abel. Just couldn't take it that God could accept his sacrifice. And for you and I, I think the challenge is, uh, you know, another just way to tell that I'm walking in the Spirit is how am I walking in relation to others around me, particularly others that are walking in the Spirit. Whatever love I claim toward God that I don't also express toward other people, particularly the body of Christ, I don't actually possess. That's what 1 John says. If I say I love God who I can't see, and I don't love my brother who I can see, I'm a liar and the truth isn't in me. The idea is I can be self-deceived in the thinking I have this amazing love and humility toward God and then express none of that towards other human individuals well, then I don't actually have what I think I am expressing towards God. Because that same love that would be from the Holy Spirit will be expressed not only toward God, but toward others. He's not only aiming it in one direction. He's producing that fruit in my life, and that fruit will be everywhere in my life. God's not the only one who's enjoying that fruit. He's sharing it with not only the body of Christ, but the world around us. So for you and I, I think it's important. All of us at some place are struggling in our life with the flesh. Maybe we should just recognize it a little bit more. Understand what's happening in the moment. It's not just somebody against you or something happening in your life that's just out of control. It's the spirit and the flesh. And I don't have to feel guilty if I recognize that and I resist the flesh. I am, in fact, acknowledging what God says about me. And I am loving him by choosing to obey his commands and walk in the spirit. And if I walk in the spirit, it is the safest place for me. And it will keep me from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And if you need that, then you just ask him. That's what he says that we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to the people we care about, well, how much then will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you need the Spirit, then ask. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do just pray for any of my brothers and sisters here tonight that just know, Lord, they need your Spirit. They need to be filled afresh. They need your Spirit to guide them to work your fruit in their lives. They need to repent, Lord Jesus, of the works of the flesh and crucify those things, those lusts, those desires, the selfishness, 
the self-justification, the self-pity. Pray that you would do that work in us, Lord. You know we're helpless outside of you. Without you, we can do nothing. But you have set us free, and you promise not to leave us, not to leave us alone in these things. You don't command these things without giving what you command. So I pray you be gracious to do that in our hearts and lives. You know what each and every one of us needs, Lord, where we are, what's happening in our lives, what's going to happen in our lives tomorrow, next week, a year from now. And I pray that you would just be growing the proper fruit that would be pleasing to you. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.